We, <laughs> we are in Ephesians chapter 4 this evening. We have been going through this letter for quite a bit here. And as we've gone through Ephesians 4, uh, here's what we've discovered. He's gone through the gospel in three different ways. And we praise him and bless him. We've seen it from top down God's perspective. We've seen a personal view in chapter 2. We've seen that, listen, we are all saved by grace through faith. It is this beautiful scene where we are blessing and praising him. And then as we got into chapter 3, we saw the division, actually chapter into chapter 2. The division between Jews and Gentiles, broken down, gone. We're called to be one people. Then we see something similar to that this morning, didn't we? That we're now one nation, one holy nation. We are now one people for God's own possession. All that that we got to study this morning in First Peter. Now, as we get into uh, Ephesians chapter 4, I would ask you, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And all of God's people said, and you may be seated. I love this passage. I've, I memorized this one very early on, and this is one of the few passages I actually memorized in King James. And so uh, right when I got saved, somebody gave me King James Version, and that's what I memorized. And so I still have a handful of passages that uh, when I think of them, that's where they come out. Uh, but uh, this is just a beautiful passage. But let me say this, and I know it always sounds cheesy, the very first word tonight is therefore. And we always ask ourselves the question, what is it there for? And what's it there for, guys? What are we supposed to do when we see that word in the text? We go backwards, right? We want to go back. What are we talking about? We always want to know, why, how does this fit into the context? In the whole letter to the Ephesians, what is this trying to say? And while there's an immediate context, I really think here we have the shift in what's the content of this letter. We've gone through all the blessings, all this beautiful salvation. Now we're about to get into the practical. So in light of the way that God saved you, had a plan to bring you into his family before the foundation of the world, even Bobby. He did all these good things for us. And now we get here and we come with, with thanksgiving and gratefulness. He says, in light of what God has done for you, therefore, here's what he calls us to do. Uh, so that's where we're going to find ourselves. What exactly is he trying to do? Now, verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. You know why Paul says he's a prisoner of the Lord? Anybody know? Where's he at when he's writing this letter? He's in prison, right? He's, he's, been, he's in prison, and Paul sometimes lays it on really thick in his letters. And he likes to point out that, listen, I'm in prison, and I love you and I care about you, but he pulls the sympathy card sometimes 
And there's some places in the Corinthian letters where he's downright sarcastic and just really lets them have it. But he kind of lays it on thick and he says, Listen, I, the prisoner of the Lord, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and with patience. Now, as we begin to read this, at the very beginning, I want you to know there's a play on words in the text. Okay, and it's, uh, my version says, I implore you. Your version may say, I urge you or I beseech you. And so there's different ways that that could come across. That is a word, uh, parakaleo. And parakaleo means to encourage, to exhort, to implore, to urge, to try to get somebody to do something. But it always comes with positive, good connotations. And I wasn't going to do this, but the root word there is kaleo. means I call. Well, that doesn't look like that in the English text, does it? Implore does not look like I call. But if you notice right after this in the text, you have, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So that same word, that root word, kaleo, keeps coming out. Three different times right there in verse 1. But here's the, the real kicker. Look back in chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. See how the immediate context here fits in. It says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly all, than all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Anybody know, anybody ever studied and learned what the Greek word for church is? It's called ecclesia. You hear that K-L sound, that cluster there? It's because the root word is the same. You know what the root word is? Kaleo. The same root word for I encourage, implore, call alongside. Here's what, but there's a prefix at the beginning, ek. And you say, well, what does this have to do with anything? Well, kaleo means to call. Ek means out. And it means to call out of something. Call out from the world, in our case, into something new. So you call it out into the church. Now, it can mean congregation, community, all those different ways. We use the Latinized version, so we use the word church today. But it just means the called out ones, the assembly. And over and over again in this letter, he calls us the church. And so right at the end, he says, listen, to him be the glory in the church. We want the glory to be him in the church with his called out ones. And then he says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. In other words, I've called, you've been called out of the world, rescued, saved by grace, all that he's done. He says, I'm calling you out now. And I want to encourage you to live a life worthy of the calling, the salvation that you've been given. Now, one thing I didn't mention, that the word there, implore, again, parakaleo, it literally means to call alongside. You know how you encourage somebody? You call them and say, let's do this together. Come, come to my side. Let's run this race together. And so when Paul, even though he's there and he's in prison, what he's telling them is, I'm going to do this. We're all in the same boat here. We're all in the called out assembly. We're all in the church. We're all God's people. We've all received the same calling. Now, I'm encouraging you. Let's Run this race together. Don't give up. You guys ever seen uh, a race, and maybe you have a team, and, and or even some of these marathons? You'll see somebody get to the end, and they just collapse. 
And you know what? More often than not, you'll see another competitor, somebody else running, stop and help them cross the finish line. I think that's kind of what we, the sense of what we're getting here. What Paul is saying is, listen, we have all these great things that God has done for us. Let's run this race together so nobody gets left behind. Now, we, one more thing, a couple of more things about this calling that we've, we've gotten. Because we think of calling. When you guys hear your calling, what do you think of? Your mission in life, right? Yeah, what are you supposed to be doing? Maybe your vocation even, your job, what God has for you. Typically, when people are talking to me about my calling, they want to know, well, how did you decide to become a pastor? They want to know at what point that happened. But again, he's talking about something different. He's talking about how you were called to salvation. All right, so this calling he's talking about is not just the vocation you've been given. It's not even a, a, a set task just for tank. It's a task that we all have, right? He's called us all into this body. We're doing it together. If you also, if you were, if you were going to turn there and go back even in chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 18, there Paul prays for them that they would be able to understand and know the hope of their calling. And so this idea is not new in the text. As he just gets done explaining salvation there, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. All that, I mean, just as we look at Ephesians 4, he begins with this. He's calling us out, and now we start getting to the practical. He says, I'm calling you to walk in a manner worthy of this salvation. Now, I don't know how you guys walk, but what's he talking about there when he says walk in a certain way? Is he talking about maybe like high-stepping or something? Some kind of march? Your lifestyle, how you behave? That's right. When we see walk a lot of times in the Bible, it's talking about your repeated actions. It's talking about your characteristics. What is your life characterized by? Okay? So he's saying, this is how I want you to live. I want you to live a life that is worthy of the salvation you have. Now, that's a lot better because like, I don't want to be up here trying to come up with some kind of fancy walk or doing the electric slide or something. And, and you guys would really be upset if you saw me doing that. And my wife's just shaking her head back there, and I probably need to stop, right? She just wants me to dance for you guys. Yeah, she's giving up back there. All right, but we do have Elvis back here in the building, and so he might be able to do a dance for us. And maybe that's what he was talking about, right? <laughs> He's got a funny walk. There we go. But we want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. Now, he starts to give us instructions here, and we look down at verse 1. As we've been, now that we are the redeemed, we are the called-out ones, we are to learn how to walk according not to the world or sin, but according to our new status as God's children. All right, look back in chapter 4. You look down at the text in verse 2. Here's how we ought to walk. Number one, with, what's it say in the text? Humility, right? Yeah. Humility. Anybody have another word in your Bible for that? Lowliness, right? Lowliness, humility. Uh, 
all words that we can understand. We recognize our lowly status as sinners, that we're only saved by grace. We don't see ourselves as better than others. You guys remember when we talked about fellowship, we looked and studied in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 said, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. If Christ can live with humility, and so can we. If he, can, if he can put himself off, consider the needs of others above his own being and him being God, then certainly we can do the same thing. Humility isn't an option for us, is it? I mean, it's commanded that we would be lowly in spirit. It can also be translated as meekness. Okay, So actually, that's the next word we're going to look at is meekness. But humility, lowliness of spirit, recognizing who we are in Christ and seeing that and recognizing that we are of equal value and worth in God's eyes. That there's, there's no one out here that God doesn't, hasn't loved and redeemed in the same way. When it comes to that, we are all of equal value. But listen, the, you know what the opposite of humility is? Pride and arrogance. Maybe those two go together. And, you know, I was talking to somebody about this a couple of years ago. And they said, you know, when I hear the word pride... I think it's a good thing, right? Because we think, well, we take pride in how we work. Pride in taking care of our stuff. Pride in different things. Well, that's a different way of using that word, isn't it? When the Bible is talking about pride, it's usually talking about arrogance. It's this thought of, and, and for none of us, arrogance is not, a, it's not a good word, is it? You don't have any good connotations that pop in your mind when you say somebody's arrogant, right? And we certainly aren't going to say that of ourselves. Well, I'm arrogant. We don't want to say that of ourselves, do we? We know that's not a good thing. We want to be humble. And some people are walking around saying, well, I'm the most humble man in the room, you know. And we, we struggle with those kind of, that thought. Well, we don't mean to put ourselves down. It doesn't mean that we have false humility and say, well, I'm just not good at anything. It means just recognizing I'm a sinner saved by grace, and what I can do is because God does it through us, right? We recognize that we're just here serving Him. So we want to walk with humility. Second, it says walk with gentleness. Again, this word is translated as meekness. It essentially means to be considerate of others. Again, you look back at Philippians chapter 2, chapter two verse 3. It says, regard one another more as more important than yourselves. Gentleness, you, you look out not only to your interests, but also their interests. In other words, when you speak and interact with someone, you think about your attitude and the way that you interact with them. You guys know that what you say or how you say it is sometimes just as important as what you say, right? I mean, that's what he's telling us. Look, if we're going to walk in a manner worthy of being saved by him, let's deal with one another with gentleness and meekness. Humility and gentleness are closely linked. Gentleness is listed as one of the fruit of the Spirit. If you go over into Galatians chapter 6, in other words, Gentleness and speech and action is something that the Spirit of God works in us. Do you listen to this verse? This is from Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. You guys recognize that how we respond in a conflict or before conflict can determine if the situation remains calm or if it blows up into some big fight. This is important for a church to hear, isn't it? 
We've been called out of the world, called into a new assembly. We, we interact with one another. If we do it with gentleness, we can avoid a lot of conflict and strife and division. You know, it's a lot easier to have to, or harder actually, to have to go back later and apologize for the things you said off the cuff, isn't it? Any of you married in here? Ever said anything and thought, I shouldn't have said that? Yeah, it's, it's harder to go back, isn't it? When you could have just kept your mouth closed the first time or chosen your words more wisely the first time you said it. Because how often when you respond like that are you really thinking clearly anyway? But I think it makes sense. Proverbs has a, so many good examples for us. But a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. I see this a lot on the Internet. So when people interact with each other on the Internet, you don't see each other face to face and you forget that we're humans and you're supposed to be gentle and considerate of one another. And on the Internet, you get separated from that. And so you can just say whatever you want. And you can say things in the meanest, rudest way. Well, you know what we're finding as we spend more and more time on the Internet, on our phones? People have forgotten when they sit down face to face with someone how to be considerate, how to be gentle, how to actually consider what they should be saying and how they should say it. We don't do it anymore. We've lost our filters. Um, uh, I know a lot of people tell me, well, as I get older, my filter's gone, you know. I hear this all the time. And I've, I've got aging, I've had aging grandparents and great-grandparents. And so I know, right, there's times where people, it's like their filter just goes away. Well, the Holy Spirit needs to be our filter. When we're in the church, we need to run this by them and say, should I say it that way? But if we're going to walk in a manner, live in a manner worthy of the gospel, we have to have humility, gentleness. And the third one there is, says with patience and showing tolerance for one another in love. As men and women called into the wor- out of the world into God's family, we're to show patience towards one another. Another translation of patience, you guys know what it is? What do you have? Long suffering, right? So if you have patience, it means you, you have long suffering. Well, that's a nice way of saying it. Sometimes you just got to put up with things, right? And you can't fly off the handle the first time something aggravates you. Doesn't mean you don't work for a solution. Doesn't mean you don't try to seek some change where it's good. But it does mean sometimes you just have to be long-suffering. You have to be patient with one another. You know, no one in the church is perfect except Bobby. And uh, sometimes, I mean, but sometimes people are going to wrong you, right? They're going to say things that just make you mad. I'm going to say things that upset you every now and then. Just like that, Bobby. Sometimes we can we can do things and just we don't mean it, maybe. And maybe we do. Sometimes people will attack you when they get upset, even if later they regret it. And some you know, there just there is no perfect person in the church, and so sometimes someone is going to do something wrong to you. Sometimes you're going to be the one that wrongs them. Perfect uh, people react in anger, they react out of hurt, they res- and others will respond in kind. And guess what? The cycle begins. This person starts fighting because patience has run out, and now they begin fighting, and somebody else gets pulled in, and the fight continues. And guess what we have in the church? A big, big mess. Satan just comes right in and eats that up, and he rejoices to see us fighting with one another. So be willing to look past the sins and mistakes of others when need be. 
Just think of how you love your own family, right? Your children. Your parents, your brothers, your sisters. Sure, there are days where they grate on your nerves a little bit. There's days where it's, you know, you get everybody gets on everybody's nerves. But you love them. And you're willing to look past some of those hard things, aren't you? You're willing to forgive. Well, we have to do that for one another just like we do with family. How much more should we allow our love for those sharing, not in our flesh and blood, but in the family of God, to feed our patience and tolerance? We've got to love one another. Consider this verse. This is Proverbs 15, verse 18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms a dispute. Responding even when we are right and they are wrong in anger. If we respond with anger, even if we're right, just leads to more anger, more strife, and more division. Being temperate and slow to anger helps calm the situation. You've got to calm it down, right? You, can't, you cannot find a solution until you get the anger taken care of, until we stop flying off the handle. How many of you, don't raise your hands, but just kind of look around. How many of you have ever spoken harsh words to one another? I only have one raise his hand. I won't call him out. But we, we do it, don't we? If you've been around any group of people long enough and you've actually worked at something together, at times you don't see eye to eye. At times you have a bad day. You might lose it. But the, the thing is we have to begin to try to calm it back down. It says if we want to live a life worthy of the gospel, live a life worthy of our salvation, we have to walk with great patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. I don't have this. This is in my notes, but... Here's the flip side of that. We want to be patient and tolerant for one another. Does that mean we turn a blind eye to sin and we never address it? It does not. And that's what we're kind of told tolerance means these days. It just means if you're tolerant, you don't ever say anything that might offend anybody. So what you end up having to do is just keep your mouth shut, right? And that's kind of what that is set up to do. Well, you have to be tolerant. What that means is, You're not allowed to say your beliefs. You can't hold up the Scripture and say, well, this is right. Well, I do want us to be tolerant of one another, patient towards one another in love. But when somebody sins, it's not loving just to let that go. But it does mean we might need to calm down a little bit and think rightly about how to address their sin. And what does the Scripture say? Something about, you know, if they've got a speck of sawdust in their eye, first got to get the log out of my eye, right? In other words, you always deal with yourself and your own sin, your own problems, before you go dealing with somebody else's sin. That's what the Scripture tells us to do. You have to be careful with that. But So we want to be right. We want to be correct in how we approach it with meekness, with gentleness, with patience. But we still want to respond to sin in the right way. But these characteristics lead us to a fourth one. Look at verse 4. Or, sorry, chapter 4, verse 2. We do it with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So what would these? if we will do these things, if we will respond with humility and gentleness and will come with patience and tolerance and love, if we will come and do these things, walk in these things, what we preserve is the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're the church. 
the called out from the world, the assembly, the congregation, the community, the new community of faith. And if we are that, and we will interact with each other as God has commanded us to interact with one another, in the same way that He interacts with us, if you really get down to it, then what we do is preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Another way of saying this is that the Spirit has called you out of the world so that you are no longer Jews, Gentiles, male, female, Greek, free, slave, etc. You're now one people of the church, so don't cause division and strife. Don't start fighting. There's just one Spirit, according to this text. There's, and the intent here is to bring us together into one family, so don't break it up. And that's just the straightforward what he's saying there. Do not break up this family. That is not living a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Verse 4 says there's just one body. There's one church, guys. There's one spirit, and he lives in each one of us, right? But as we discovered this morning, he doesn't just live in us individually. He's building us up into a spiritual house, a spiritual temple for God. And that, however, is not individual, although we are all individually in it. We're all there as a community. We're there to be together. In the Pledge of Allegiance, anybody remember the Pledge of Allegiance? you guys still know it? In the Pledge of Allegiance, we talk about being one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Well, the church is one church. It's under God, and it's supposed to be indivisible. It was never God's intent to see His holy temple split up, arguing or backbiting. You think about the church in Corinth, they got, in a, they got quite a bit of trouble in their church. There were many divisions and schisms that, the, that in that church that Paul had to address. You can look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. In chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, Paul tells them that he can't even address them as spiritual men. He says he has to talk to them as men of the flesh or as infants because of their division. You hear that? He says, I have to talk to you like you are children because you won't grow up and stop fighting with one another. Some of you say, I'm of Paul. Some of you say, I follow Apollos. They keep having all these man-made divisions in them. And I hate to see what Paul would say and what the Spirit would say if he were in some of the churches that we've all been in. You know what Paul tells them in 1 Corinthians as he's talking about the, about how they are acting like children? He says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? You hear that? He tells them, Do you not know that we are the temple? That the Spirit of God dwells in us? So stop fighting and stop the division. Walk with humility. Walk with gentleness. Walk with patience. Tolerate and bear with one another. Maintain the unity of the Spirit. You know, in 1 Corinthians 11, he actually calls them out for their divisions again. There they're meeting to share in the Lord's Supper. It's supposed to be a time of unity where, they, where we visibly break bread and drink the wine and juice together for our oneness in Christ. But guess what? Sometimes they were there for the wrong reasons and they were fighting. He has to call them out again. Church, we've all seen churches divided and fighting. Who's ever been through a church split? Yeah, who's ever seen churches fighting? Uh, uh, the last time I talked through this, I had some notes from the last time I looked at this. And I was talking to someone, and they were talking about their church. They just had a church cleanup day. 
And in the kitchen, there were some old pots, and somebody decided, well, we have new pots, so I'm going to take the old pots and get rid of them. And they did. You know, a family left the church because somebody threw out that old pot. I mean, how silly can you get, right? That same church, <laughs> I was talking to someone later, and I was making a joke about how churches split over the over carpet. And he says, well, this was a few months after the, the initial one. He said, well, you know, we didn't, it wasn't about church, the color of the carpet, but just recently they had had carpets out in their foyer. He said a couple people tripped on them. So we voted, the deacons got together and decided, well, let's move those carpets. And another family left because they wanted those carpets. I mean, we make jokes about it, and some of you are kind of chuckling, and I'm chuckling because it's just kind of silly, isn't it? And But human nature seems to push us that way sometimes. I mean, you think about that pot. Some of you want to know the rest of the story, don't you? Why did they care about that pot? What was it? Somebody donated it. Yeah, maybe their great-grandmother. Maybe they've been using that pot for 50 years. I don't know. And the truth is, it, it doesn't matter, does it? That pot's not going on to heaven. We can't take it with us. It was old. It was beat up. And I understand we attach personal feelings to things sometimes. But can you imagine deciding to break the unity of the Spirit over a pot? We can't imagine it. But insert the correct object or the correct thing that we want and suddenly we might decide, well, you know what? Maybe it is worth the division and the strife. But is it really? No. But in the moment, there are times where we will get upset. And that's when, if I say something crazy like that, Bobby needs to come to me with gentleness and say, Pastor, you need to get this straightened out. You are not thinking rightly about that old pot. You remember that, Bobby. You're the chairman of the deacon, so if I get in trouble, you come to me with gentleness. Bobby said that he's not coming on Sunday night anymore because <laughs> the pastor just keeps calling his name. <laughs> oh, that's right. You're not coming next Sunday night, are you? You know, we didn't announce that today, and we probably should have. So if you're watching at home or you see somebody reminded us, next, next Sunday is Father's Day. So I don't believe we have Sunday night service next week. So we did not announce that this morning. That's a good good reminder. I think uh, just about every week in our study of Ephesians, I've mentioned that chapters 1 through 3 set that foundation for us. They explain the deep theological truths of the gospel. And we saw God again and again pouring out His favor and kindness on us, even we didn't deserve it. We saw him intervening in the world and to bring us into his family. Church, the cost of our salvation was the death of Jesus on the cross. The king of all kings was tortured, crucified, and buried. Our sin was responsible for his death, your sin and mine. Nevertheless, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if Jesus could humble himself, consider our deeds over his own life, how much more should we forgive one another and bear with one another in love? There's one body, one spirit, 
just as you were also called in the one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You know, the, the Protestant Reformation was a beautiful thing because we got back to the gospel. We got back into how salvation actually works. But you know, there was a reason there was a lot of resistance because people wanted there to be one church. And there's a dream in which, in an ideal world, we are all in one church. And listen, I get along with Methodists and Presbyterians and, and on most things, 99% of the things we think just alike. And we need to be able to work together. But not at the con- not we, but we have to be careful as we preserve the unity of the Spirit that we remain in the gospel. But on little things, let's even then work together. Uh, as we get ready to close here, I want to say this last thing. I, I'm still fairly new here at Forest Heights. And I haven't seen a spirit of disunity, a spirit of division. You know, you know yeah, people have suggestions sometimes. And those are good. But here's what I've learned. I love to teach through these passages before I know what they are. Because over time, if we're not careful, if we don't pray, we will find division and strife. First Peter 5.8 says, be, sober, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Be on the alert. Be ready. On a good day like this, on a beautiful, hot Sunday afternoon, when we are thinking clearly, we're not angry, we're not upset, I want you to commit to praying for the unity of this church. Let's pray for that unity before the division happens. Because you've got to decide right now, before the storm hits, how you're going to act and how you're going to interact and treat one another. That's how it is with so many things in life. Once you get in the crisis, you just, you're just making snap decisions. But if you plan and discipline yourself and train yourself now, when those moments come, we will maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Let's pray tonight. Father, I thank you for Forest Heights Baptist Church. I thank you for all the believers that have served in this community of faith since this church began. Father, I thank you that it has been a blessing to this community. Father, tonight, I pray against schisms. I pray against disunity. I pray against divisiveness. And Father, if there are any relationship problems between us, if there is anger, Father, I pray that we would not let the sun go down on it. Father, I pray that we would deal with it rightly, that we would pray about it and give it to you, that we would show patience. But also, Father, I pray that if there are things that need to be said, we'd go one-on-one. And we would go to our brother, our sister, and speak with humility and concern. But Father, I pray that you would keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace here in this church. Help us walk with humility and gentleness and patience. Father, help us interact with one another as you interact with us. Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.